Well, good morning once again. It's good to have you all here as we kick off another fall. Uh, I know our family's sending some college students back to their schools this uh, week, and maybe many others of you might be heading back. It's been, it's been real. Thanks for being with us this summer. And we're stoked to have Westmont students and City College students back. So where are you? Yeah? Some here. Yeah? Um, College students are an important part of our church family, so we're glad you're here. Well, um, we are going to go back in time a little bit today. Are you all ready to get in your time machine? We're going back to the year 1979. How many of you were not alive in 1979? Yeah, a lot of you weren't alive in 1979. What was going on in the world in 1979? Well, 1979 was the year of the Iran hostage crisis. For those of you who weren't alive at that time, uh, this is uh, a group of Iranian college students uh, uh, invaded the, the U.S. embassy, took 52 hostages and held them for 444 days. That was a crazy event. Um, things were not all bad, though. Back home, uh, Michael Jackson releases Off the Wall album, sold 7 million copies. And we didn't have earbuds back in those days to listen to that. But uh, if you were really cool, you might listen to it on one of these guys, which was uh, 1979 was the first year Sony introduced the Walkman, too. And yeah, you looked hip with a big old rectangle on your hip and earphones on your head. Um, and uh, if we weren't uh, listening to music, we might have been watching TV shows uh, like That's Incredible. Remember? That was a bad show. And, uh, uh, or MASH, that was better. Or my favorite, The Jeffersons. Yeah, we're moving on up. Remember that? Yeah, it was good stuff. Um, speaking of television, that was the year the first cable sports channel uh, came, uh, was founded. It was called the Entertainment Sports Programming Network. You might know it better as ESPN was founded that year. And they didn't carry the NBA Finals, but if uh, you were to watch the NBA Finals that year, it was uh, two teams that are no longer teams anymore. It was uh, the Seattle Supersonics. We've got some Seattle people in the house here. They defeated the Washington Bullets. Yeah, that is a, you can hardly see that, uh, but it's a really bad logo. And just this is kind of uh, for cheap thrills. If, if you were to have uh, not lived in Seattle or Washington, Washington, D.C. that year, in order to actually watch the NBA Finals, you had to stay up late because it wasn't on live. It could only be watched late on tape delay. The NBA Finals, crazy. Anyway, uh, last little bit of trivia from 1979. That was the year McDonald's introduced uh, cheap toys and bad food to America. So, uh, you know, Happy Meal came out that year. But that very same year, Uh, In the fall of 1979, a small group of people met in a living room in Montecito to start studying the book of Acts. And and from the inception, they didn't want to just be a Bible study. They were intent on planting a new church in Santa Barbara, a church that would become known as Santa Barbara Community Church. Uh, After a few weeks in the living room, they moved downtown uh, State Street. There was a bar down there, and they'd clear off the beer bottles and stuff from the night before and put their communion on the tables. And did anybody here at the bar? There was a couple. That row right there was at the bar in 1979. Yeah, yeah. And... uh, 
after a little bit of time, the church moved up to the Mesa at La Mesa Community Church where we worshiped for nine years. Anybody else at the La Mesa? Yeah, more people there. Uh, after nine years of that, we moved just down the street to St. Mark's Methodist Church. How many of you started attending at St. Mark's? Yeah, more, more folks. After nine years of that, we moved down on Hollister to Living Faith Center. How many of you started attending at Living Faith? Yeah. yeah. And then when Santa Barbara Community Church was about in, in our late 20s, 28 years old, uh, we started dating another church 15 years our elder. Scandalous, huh? Yeah. And in 2008, uh, that, that church was called uh, Trinity Baptist Church. Anybody was at Trinity Baptist back in the day? Yeah, several of you. And uh, so in 2008, Trinity Baptist and Santa Barbara Community Church got married. And it was a, a, a beautiful merger, which we still give thanks for today. Well, why rehearse the history? Well, every fall since we've set aside a, a few Sundays, four Sundays this year, uh, th- to think together about what it means to be the church. And, and more than that, to uh, what sort of church do we want to be moving forward? Because we still believe in the centrality of the local church to God's plans. We believe in the importance of the local church. Now that sentence that I just said, that we believe in the centrality and importance of the local church, that might seem kind of backwards, uh, kind of a weird thing to say in today's age, right? Whether because of the pandemic, which uh, just got simply got some people out of the habit of participating regularly in a local church, or maybe because of disenchantment over how the church or even this church has, has addressed issues of race or sexuality or politics, or maybe just because of hectic family schedules, uh, more and more people have decided that participating regularly in a local church is just not for them anymore. According to a Gallup poll, church attendance levels have been declining over the past uh, 25 years or so at a rate of about a percentage point a year. What that means is that, that around the year 2000, uh, roughly 70% or more of our, uh, of our nation had some regular participation in a local church. And if we were to look at those numbers today, it's under 50%. So that, that number is falling year by year. Now, some of those people uh, are, are uh, we're walking away from their faith altogether and from Jesus. And some are not walking away from Jesus. They are just, they don't see the need anymore for the institutional church. And it's in the midst of all those realities uh, that our conviction here remains the same. Uh, that, that the Christian church is the local church is, is where it's at. Uh, the, the, the church, well, put it another way, the Christian faith is, is deeply personal and intimate, but it's also corporate and collective. So as, as we hear in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says we're to hold on to our uh, confession of hope without wavering. That's something you personally can do on your own. And yet it also tells us that we're not to neglect uh, meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but that we are to consider how we may stir one another up to love and to good deeds. That is not something you can do by yourself. So there's, a, there's an unavoidable corporate dimension to this. And so we believe that the words that Chuck Colson wrote uh, decades ago are still true. He wrote this. He said, there is today a widespread belief that one can be a Christian and develop one's own faith system apart from the church. The proposition is ludicrous. Uh, 
Everyone regenerated by God is, by definition, a part of the universal church that spans ages and all across the world. It's not a matter of choice or membership. In following the pattern made normative in the book of Acts, each believer is to make his or her confession, uh, uh, make his or her confession, be baptized, which we're going to do next week, and become part of a local congregation with all of the accountability that that implies. Membership in a church particular or a local congregation is no more optional than membership in the church universal. And to that, we would say, amen. We think he's right. Now, over the next few weeks, our, our goal as we uh, move through this, what we call our anniversary series, is not simply to beat you over the head with the message, uh, come to church, as if church is something you just come to. <laughs> we are the church, the people of God. But, I mean, that would be kind of a crazy message. to pre- We'd be preaching to the choir. You're already here. <laughs> um, Participation in the church is important, but what we want to do over the coming weeks is to lay out for you what we believe the church ought to be. We want to lay before you again a vision of the church that we are striving to become and invite you, even exhort you, plead with you to help us be this kind of church by God's grace. So that's where we're going. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about this vision of church life, that we want to be a church We're striving to be a church that is joyfully faithful, that is relentlessly relational, that is collectively invested, and that is generously engaged. And so we're going to hit the first of those today. A people, we want to be a a church that is joyfully faithful. Now to do this, we're going to, over the next, every week, for the next four weeks, we're going to look through the lens of a rather obscure story in the Bible. It's found at the end of your Old Testament in the book of Haggai. Haggai, say Haggai. Yes, Haggai. Now, where is Haggai? Haggai, uh, if you turn in your Bible to the book, uh, first book in the New Testament, Matthew, if you flip back three books, uh, you'll pass uh, towards the beginning of the Bible, past Malachi and Zechariah. If you're, you might skip it if you're not careful, because it's probably only one page in your Bible, and it's called Haggai. Now, so we eventually got, we initially got in our time machine and went back to 1979. Now we're going to go further back in our time machine to the year 520 BC. So 2,500 years ago, five centuries before the time of Christ. What was happening in the fall of 520 BC? After almost 70 years of captivity in Babylon, do you remember uh, a consequence of the people's, uh, of Israel's unfaithfulness to God was God allowed the, the Babylonian empire to invade Israel and they swept into Jerusalem. They completely destroyed the temple and they, they took a lot of the leaders of, of Israel, the Jews back with them to their homeland, to what is now modern-day Iraq. And so those people had been in exile for decades. Well, at the time of 520 BC, where we're going to be reading about, a new empire is in charge. It's the Persian Empire, modern-day Iran. And, and King Darius has decreed that all of the people who have been taken exiled into exile can go home. They can go back to their homeland. And so now these... These exiles are back in Jerusalem 
rebuilding and remaking a life for themselves after a long time of being away. But it seems they haven't entirely learned their lesson yet that they should have learned in exile. So that's where we are. We're not going to stand for the first part of this, but we'll, we'll stand a little bit later. Are you ready to dig in here? Uh, here's how the book of Haggai starts out. I'm, I'm going to have it up on the screen because my Bible's ESV, but I wanted to read it in the New Living Translation today. So it begins like this. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, this is the Persian king, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we're introduced to four people right away. The Persian king Darius, the prophet Haggai, uh, and the, the governor, the Jewish governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Jeshua. And Haggai brings this message. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruin? This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Look what's happening to you. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you are putting them in pockets filled with holes. So what's going on here? Every one of them would have agreed that it was a good goal to rebuild the temple of God that had been torn down 70 years earlier. But the question was, when? When would they do this? Seems that they wanted to wait until they had enough time and resources to make it happen. The problem with that was there's never enough. It's like they're, they're taking their money and it's just like they're putting it in pockets of holes. It, it won't hold. Um, nevertheless, God points out a little bit of irony here. That is, in spite of their feeling that they, they just don't have enough yet to get to God's house, he points out this inconvenient fact that they do have enough to work on their own houses. Now, there's, there was nothing wrong with them building houses once they got back to Jerusalem. But it seems that they were not content to just build a dwelling place. They were building luxurious houses, paneled houses, like the, the temple used to be paneled. And so God points it out. You guys are spending all this time and resources on yourselves while my house lies in ruins. So the story continues in verse 7. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests. But they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Now, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? 
What God is saying here is that in his deep love for his people, his desire for them to to experience the fulfillment and joy that we all want, he's needing to resort to what he doesn't want to resort to, the instrument of pain to get their attention and remind them of what was important. Now, in verse 8, he made clear, this is what I want. Build my house that I may be honored. Or the ESV says that I may be glorified. And I want to ask, uh, or rather say, it seems that they had forgotten what they were made for. Do you know what you were made for? When when we were little, my kids uh, had a little litany that we'd do with them, a little... Uh, you know, back and forth. And we'd ask, the first questions were, uh, who made you? And they'd say, God made me. And, and then the second question was, why did God make you? And they'd say without their R's back then, for, the, for his own glory, you know, <laughs> for his own glory. That's why God made us. This is, that, that statement was based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is a, a teaching document that was drawn up in the 17th century to teach children uh, the faith. And the first question was, what is the chief end of man? That's an old way of saying, why do we as humans exist? And do you remember the answer? That our chief end, our highest goal for which God made you and made me, it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, a man, a woman, if you're six or 96, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we were made. Now, follow-up question. What does it mean to glorify someone or something? Now, uh, our family doesn't go out to eat a whole lot, but when we do, one of my favorite places to go is Los Agaves. Any Mexican fam- uh, fans out there? And uh, man, every time we go to Los Agaves, I know they make a lot of good dishes, but I get the same thing every time. I just can't help it. I get the chili verde burrito, and it is just heaven. Now, I, uh, you know, other people get other things, and sometimes I get a taste, and I think that's pretty good. But I glorify Los Agaves Chili Verde Burrito by choosing it first every time. Nothing stands in the way of me and that burrito. That is my way of saying it is delightful above all else. Now, the same is true. I'm prioritizing that in my life. And, and the idea is when we glorify, we prioritize something, we are glorifying it. We're expressing its delightfulness, its awesomeness. Friends, God is glorified by being prioritized and God is never prioritized. uh, God is never glorified when he is not prioritized. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Let's read the last part. I'm going to invite you now to stand for the reading of this final part of God's word. Pick up the story here. Haggai 1.12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message, uh, uh, began the message from the Lord their God. And when they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. 
and the enthusiasm of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. And they began to work on the house of their God, the Lord of Heaven's armies, on September 21st, 520 B.C., of that second year of King Darius's reign. Then, on October 17th of that same year, the Lord sent another message through the prophet Haggai. He said, say this to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. But now the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. For this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. And I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Oh, I skipped one line, didn't I? I wanted to get to this too. No, I'll just skip that. You know, we're going to be in this text for four weeks. Benji will pick it up next week, so that's good. Um, So uh, the, the people responded with obedience. Hooray, good job, guys. But as they see this new temple being built, the older ones among them can't help but remember the former temple. And they think about the good old days. And the reality is sometimes, even when we're acting obediently and faithfully, well, the results may seem disappointing. But while God never promises us an easy life, he never promises us a fully functional family, he never promises a successful or rewarding career, even good health, God doesn't promise any of that stuff. He does make some remarkable promises uh, in this passage to those who seek him. The first promise, did you hear it? Twice. He said, I will be with you. I'll be with you. He says, I will fill this house, this temple you're going to rebuild with glory. Glory greater than the house before that you remember. And I will bring peace. I will bring my shalom there. Now, what he's saying is God's presence, his glory, his power in all of this. He's promising to people who are discouraged about the smallness of this temple, this seemingly inglorious structure that they're trying to rebuild. God says greater things are yet to come. I'm going to fill this house with glory that's going to blow your socks off. Now, to these people who are, again, tired, discouraged, just got home, uh, need the challenge to get to work. The people who hear these promises, uh, God, God delivers promises to, to buoy them and to point them forward. Now, let's, let's get out of the time machine and come back into the present now. Here we are back in 2023 in the fall of this year. 
And I want to bring, uh, spend a little bit of time reflecting on what this has to do with us, what it means for us to be the church that God is calling us to be. Specifically, how uh, does it point us toward being a, pe- a people who might be rightly described as joyfully faithful? That's our question for today. First of all, I want us to notice in the, the text that we just read in, in Haggai 1 and 2, faithfulness is a big emphasis, is it not? And again, what this is described as is making God the first priority in their lives. And, and the same is true for us. God is once first place in our life. Did you know God will never satisfy, be satisfied with second or third or fourth on the list? He'll meet us where we at, where we're at, but he won't be satisfied with that until he is first place. Why? Is it because he's such an arrogant God or a stingy God? No. God knows that he is the only place that we will find our true and lasting joy and satisfaction in life when, when he is first in our lives. So we want to be a church around here that takes God really seriously, even as we don't take ourselves that seriously. So I want to ask you, ask us together, what is first in your life? Uh, kids, is it getting good grades? Is it having fun? Adults, is it getting ahead in your job, in your career? Is it your kids' sporting endeavors? Is it cool vacations now that you're retired? Or fixing up your house or the hobby that you enjoy so much? You show what you value and what you prioritize by what you're willing to skip or what you're willing to put into it. Now, I want you to hear me closely. There is nothing wrong with advancing in your career or getting good grades. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your kids' athletic pursuits or taking vacations. There's nothing wrong with updating your home or uh, enjoying a hobby. The question is, what comes first in your life and in my life, in our life together as a church This was Haggai's challenge to the people of Israel and is the challenge for every generation of Christians. What does it mean to prioritize a relationship with God and the purposes of God above all else? And I want to suggest that if we are truly to be a faithful congregation, uh, we will be a church that, one, honors God's word, and two, is committed to prayer. If we can really be described as a joyfully faithful congregation, we will be a church that loves God's word, upholds it, and and is committed to prayer. This is why we return week after week to God's revelation of himself in in the scriptures. We are unapologetically a Bible church. Somebody says, what kind of church do you go to? You can hopefully rightly say we're a Bible church at Santa Barbara Community Church. In this book, you will find a true picture of who God is and what he desires for us. This is why we, every Sunday, we open God's word with reverence and we listen to it with expectation of what he might say to us, regardless of who's standing up here being the mouthpiece. 
It's why when we gather in our home groups week after week, it's a central part of that is opening the word of God, reading it together, studying it, and figuring out what does this mean practically for our lives. As you heard earlier, it's why our Sunday schools, our uh, classes are committed to teaching God's word, having our kids hear that. And that is true for all the ministries here at Santa Barbara Community Church. And it's why we hope that every person uh, who is part of our faith family is making the Bible a part of their daily life and habits. We listen to God's word. We read God's word. We study God's word. We meditate on God's word. We memorize God's word. We obey God's word. That's what it means to be faithful. All because we want to know God and put him first in our lives. Oh, that we would truly be a church that that loves God's word. But secondly, again, we want to be a community that is committed to prayer. Faithful, in this sense, means seeking God's leading in the very messy things of our lives. And so we pray. Faithful means realizing that we are not ultimately able to bring about the things that we want and we need in life most deeply. And so we pray. Prayer recognizes our dependence on God for the health of this church. Prayer is an acknowledgement that apart from Christ, we can do apart from Christ, we can do nothing. nothing. Thank you. So, will you pray with us this this year? I want to encourage you. We have a prayer meeting that meets Wednesday mornings from 6.45 to 7.45 in our fellowship hall. I know that not everybody in this room can make that time or day. But for some of you, you can. And I want to ask you, would you commit to praying with us this year? That that God's spirit would rest upon us and enable us to to live for him. And that we, we pray together for for God's kingdom come in Santa Barbara and all the churches of this town and across the world because God is worthy of all people's praise. This is why we have prayer teams every service uh, during communion on the right and the left. And I want to encourage us, if we're people that really believes and is committed to prayer, use them. Go ask them during uh, communion to, to pray that you would know your utter dependence on God for all good things. Ask them to pray that you would love Jesus more this year than you did last year. Ask them to pray for your children or your parents or your grandparents or your grandkids. Ask them to pray with you when you're in a crisis and ask them to give thanks with you in times of blessing. We want to be a church that that is faithful to God by recognizing our dependence on him in prayer. This means that all the things that we do, all of our small groups and programs, will not just be programs that we attend, but will be places in which we go hard after God together. This is our hope. This is our dream of, of living into this vision of being a faithful people. But I want you to notice, too, one more thing, that our our vision, our hope is not just that we will be a people who are faithful to God, but that we would be joyfully faithful. That's an important uh, descriptor there that we were aiming for. Sadly, I think all too many Christians today seem more angry than joyful. And I think I might know why. It's because, well, when we get afraid... Sometimes that comes out sideways as anger. 
And frankly, there's a lot in our world, in our lives today, that make us feel afraid. But as Haggai points uh, to us, to the God who is greater than any obstacle that stands before us, he, he points us to a God who promises to be with us and promises that he will work for his glory among the nations. When we understand this, we can be like the woman described in Proverbs 31 who, who laughs at the future. She's not overwhelmed by fear. There's an author named Ed Stetzer who, who wrote a whole book on this called Christians in an Age of Outrage. And he wrote this, I think, as a good reminder for all of us. He said, God has supernaturally guided his church for 2,000 years. He has overcome every obstacle as if it were nothing, raised up courageous believers to accomplish tasks others thought impossible, and protected his church and word from every means of attack. Nothing in history has surprised him or come close to overwhelming his power to uphold us. Even as the alarm bells of today are ringing loud that the end is near, that Christianity is near collapse and the church is dying, church history reminds us that these same false alarms have rung many times before. Church history reminds us that God is sovereign and in control during this age of outrage, just as he was in the Middle Ages and the Reformation and in the Enlightenment. It confirms that there is no real reason to be outraged, merely faithful, and I would add joyfully faithful, knowing that God is in control. We want to be a church who has a high view of scripture, a commitment to prayer, but is also a community of people marked by humility and laughter and deep joy because God is our God. Now, what do we do if we feel fearful or discouraged or even angry as we think about the present or the future. Years ago, I knew a, a very wise mom who was dealing with her, her young son who would get in bad moods. Anybody ever get in bad moods? Any of you kids? And uh, this particular boy was having a hard time getting out of his bad moods. And when he'd get in this like sour disposition, he, it would, he would treat other people poorly. And so his mom was thinking, how do I help my son uh, shift gears and get out of this dark place. And I don't know what kind of inspiration hit her, but she started talking to her son about the power of his eyebrows. That's right. Did you know that you're, there's a lot of power in your eyebrows? Now, what she meant by this is when your eyebrows are down, everybody put your eyebrows down. Yeah, it doesn't, it just, makes your whole face scrunch up. And it even does the same thing to your heart. You start feeling like your face is just down and sour. But now put your eyebrows up, big eyes. It's hard to feel or look angry when your eyebrows are up, right? <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. And so she'd encourage her son when he'd start getting his bad mood, she'd, she'd just point to the eyebrows or just say eyebrows. And he'd get his eyebrows up, and it started working. He started getting out of, of this funk that he was in. Now, why do I tell you that? Not because you need parenting tips. It's a metaphor, people, right? <laughs> it's easy for us as Christians in the day and age we live in to get our eyebrows down as we mull on the things that are not right in our world. 
Our minds go down rabbit trails of injustice. Our hearts become fixated on who is at fault and, and how impossible and intractable all these hard things seem to be. But friends, we are a people who are called to set our hearts on things above, to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when we get our our eyes up, our eyebrows up on the King of Kings, and we remember that he is our God, we are his people, well, then it's hard to stay discouraged for too long, no matter how hard the things in our life are. And let me just say, I'm in in no ways uh, naive that there are not some really hard things going on in people's lives in this room right now. What I'm calling us to as a church is not simply just slap a silly smile on your face and pretend everything's okay, but again, to turn our gaze up to the Lord Jesus himself, who is good and who is faithful and who loves us, who has promised that he will be with us. And he did indeed. God sent Jesus as a, as a fulfillment of those promises to the people in Haggai's day that he did come. And he did come as the new temple of God filled with glory that they could not have imagined. And he now inhabits the people of of the church and he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the reality. These are the convictions that allow us to be a people who are joyfully faithful. And I want to encourage you. Will you step into this this year again with us? If you've been with us for 44 years or this is your first Sunday here, we invite you to be the church alongside us. Let me pray for us and then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. Oh Lord, we can never be the church that, that we want to be and that you want us to be without your help, without your strengthening, without your guidance. So Lord, we pray that you would, that you would instill us and fill us with your joy and your presence. Lord, fill this house with glory, not for our uh, renown or, or reputation, but for yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to come to the table now as we do every week. We're going to remember that even in our faithfulness, he remains faithful. We remember that he was faithful even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so we come and we take these elements that remind us of the broken body of Christ, his shed blood through which we have forgiveness of our sins. Friends, greater things are yet to come. The one who came and died and rose again is coming once again. And we are called to be his people until he does come again. So let's come. If you are in Christ, come to the table and worship him.